Hey, everybody, and uh, welcome to the Conquering Columbus podcast. I'm Mike. We've got Josh and Tim over there. How you guys doing? Good, good, dude. How are you? Good, man. Good. I am uh, feeling a little little tired from today's events, but we'll get the man, through it. The man golfed today. I did golf today. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> we wanted to do a strategy session, and we decided the best place to do it was the golf course. But, I mean, I guess uh, that, is t- that can be tiring, so I'll give it, you that. Well, we didn't get a lot of strategizing done, and now I have a bunch of emails that I'm going to have to get to and I'm kind of wishing we would have yeah, just done it. You just put off all here. the work. Yeah. I also play terribly. So that factors in as well. Um, but that being said, um, excited about this episode today. I mean, it was really, really great interview. We had, uh, Mr. Mark Kwame with us of drive capital and you know, well, he kind of owns your guys' company. So yeah, he's pretty involved. Yeah. Yeah. Can't really say enough about how yeah, I'm a big fan of drive capital. Like obviously that, that kind of started the Making put not putting Columbus on the map, but putting Columbus on the map as far as real capital, real rate. You know, mm-hmm. if you're if when I was growing up, if you wanted to ha- have a startup, you either bootstrapped it or you moved. Right, and they, they're bringing that here. So I, the, listening to their story, the guy was just not that he's not smart, but he was just in the right place at the right time. It seemed like all the time, like mm-hmm. he's just always there. You know, and uh, he obviously accomplished a lot of goals. He's very inspiring to listen to, and he's into cool, some cool stuff outside of you know work, which. It's pretty rad too. Yeah, yeah, I think it was it was very cool to learn about. I mean, he even, he even says himself, like growing up in Silicon Valley at the time that he did, there's no better place in the world to be. And just the experiences that he had, and talking about, I won't spoil it all, but Steve Jobs setting up his first email, and I mean, you know, like <laughs> yeah. where where in the world do you hear something like that? So to uh, to hear his journey and how everything unfolded and how he was able to capitalize on it, because a lot of people can grow up in in successful environments and be surrounded by immense amounts of opportunity, but, but never capitalize on it. And he definitely did to a high level. So it was pretty, uh, it was cool to, to hear the whole journey. And he's a huge testament as to like Columbus is legit, right? Right. So if somebody like that is going to leave that set up and come here it just kind of proves that much more how you know how much opportunity is here so it's awesome it'll be a fun episode 100 percent. so i uh, hope you guys enjoy this episode as always we appreciate you tuning in and we will be right back this is conquering columbus Hey there, Conquerors. Today on the show, Jenny Brittenbauer of Jenny's Splendid Ice Creams. I'm truly never comfortable. When I'm comfortable, I'm bored. I just have to keep going. Only when you're a little bit scared are you in a place where you're about to learn something. We're explorers, and explorers are making discoveries because they are going places where people haven't before. Urban Meyer. There's one guarantee in this world, and that's hard work will be rewarded. And hard work, you have to embrace discomfort. I love how you said that, a little uncomfortably. Donato's Jane Abel. We have a umbrella idea of agape capitalism, which is about doing business and doing it with love and giving back to the community. And I believe in our product, but more importantly, I believed in our people. Pelotonia CEO, Doug Olman. There's this genuine pride for things that were born and raised in Columbus. And that's awesome. At the same time, there's this beautiful Midwest humility. People don't necessarily care about who gets credit. Cameron Mitchell of Cameron Mitchell Restaurants. One of our goals is to be better today than we were yesterday and better tomorrow than we are today, and that goal stays the same 24-7-365. This is Conquering Columbus. Hey there, Conquerors. Welcome to another episode of the Conquering Columbus podcast. And today we're really excited. We've got uh, Mr. Mark Kwame joining us. And Mark is a co-founder and partner at Drive Capital. Mark and co-founder Chris Olson relocated from San Francisco to Columbus to start their own venture capital firm here. And before founding Drive, Mark and Chris were working at Sequoia Capital, one of the most well-known venture capital firms in Silicon Valley and the world. And uh, many might have called them crazy for moving from San Francisco to Columbus, but 
The move has paid off as Drive Capital has become one of the premier venture capital firms in the Midwest and the United States. And with companies like Root Insurance, Beam, Duolingo, Olive, and more, uh, Path Robotics, where- All right, I was waiting our, for it. Yeah, uh, okay, come yeah, on yeah, now. Yeah, where our you got to give a plug. Got to yeah, give a plug. Got to give a little plug to our very own Josh and Tim. Drive Capital's just had a huge impact on the Midwest and continues to invest in this community and the Midwest at large. We're really excited to have Mark here today to uh, talk about what he saw in Columbus that made him want to take that leap and what he's seen change since getting here and where he thinks we're heading. So welcome to Conquering Columbus, Mark. Great. Well, thanks uh, for having me here. I'm looking forward to a fun conversation. Yeah, it's really exciting to uh, have you joining us today. And I've always, I've always wanted to talk to you and Chris, just people who would make that leap. I grew up in San Diego, came out to Columbus, decided to stay. So I kind of have that, that mindset of, I think the Midwest is a great place to be. But, um, you know, one of the first places we like to start is just learn a little bit about kind of how you got to where you are today and, and maybe even more specifically how you got into venture capital and, and what made you take that route in your life. Yeah. So uh, I'm a hundred percent California guy. My parents were born in San Francisco and um, and uh, I grew up there. Uh, my father is actually one of the founders of Silicon Valley. He was a founder of a company called National Semiconductor. Before that was at Fairchild, was one of the very first guys at Apple. Uh, and then went to Kleiner Perkins, a, a big um, a VC firm in the, in the Bay Area. So I grew up in the tech world. I actually started working at Apple when I was 19. Uh, before long, I went to go help start, uh, start Apple France uh, in the early 80s. And then... Uh, uh, then I, uh, very soon after that, kind of got the entrepreneurial bug and um, started my first company. It, it uh, did well and then flopped and went to zero. So uh, I had the belly flop uh, and then uh, did some more, a couple different stints doing things. And then um, I started another company, a company called the CKS Group. And uh, what CKS was, was one of the first digital agencies. Uh, and uh, we actually wrote Apple's original book in 88, 89 on how to do desktop publishing using a Macintosh and a laser printer. And uh, the company grew very rapidly. Uh, we actually took the company public in 1995. Um, we sold it in 98. And then I joined Sequoia in 99. And we were really known as the first true digital agency we we basically launched uh, everyone from Yahoo to I don't know if you remember Excite. We were the we launched Amazon. We launched eBay. I mean, one of the, my biggest mistakes was uh, Pierre said to us, "You know, I'll give you one hundred twenty five thousand dollars to do the eBay logo or two percent of the company you pick." And of course, I picked the one hundred twenty five thousand dollars. So you know, we saw all these companies grow and and do these great things. And then, like I said, um, sold it in ninety eight. Actually, a little side story on CKS. My arch competitor. Uh, was located in Columbus, Ohio. And I didn't even know where Columbus, Ohio was at the time. And that was Nancy Kramer of uh, Resource Marketing. And she's become a very, very close friend. Uh, and uh, I'll never forget one time I was actually visiting here in 98 or 99, visiting my friend John Kasich, how I got here. And I actually got out of my hotel and walked to Resource Marketing just so I could see this place. I got, you know, it was a Sunday, I'm peering in the windows and all that kind of fun stuff just to see who this arch competitor of mine was. Uh, anyway, so then I joined Sequoia in 99. Uh, Sequoia, as you mentioned, is is really, I, I was very fortunate. I still don't quite know why they wanted me, but they asked me to come on as a general partner uh, and uh, really got to see, uh, you know, everything at first, you know, at the ground floor. So, uh you know, many companies, you know, from, from Google to PayPal to, uh, I mean, you know, uh, LinkedIn is the one I did, YouTube, all kinds of crazy stuff uh, from day one. 
Uh, and then something happened that I didn't expect. Um, in uh, 2000, late 2010, uh, my friend John Kasich uh, decided to run for governor of the great state of Ohio. Uh, and, uh, and he won. And uh, right after he won, uh, he asked me, he said, Mark, I really need some help here. You know, you know we get, this is right after the financial crisis and things were pretty tough and lost 400,000 jobs in the state. And he said, you know, I really want to privatize economic development in the state of Ohio and um, I'd like you to do it. And I said, John, I know nothing about this stuff. I do nothing. Uh, but I, I, did have a, I did have a yearning, if you will, or a desire for public service. I, like I told you, I'd, I'd, I'd worked since I was 19. I hadn't done any public service. The other thing I did, uh, as I told him mistakenly several years before this, uh, I, when I was 21, I wrote my life goals, uh, all the things I wanted to get accomplished. And one of them, for example, was to be a CEO of a public company. And, you know, there were a lot of family things, personal things. And one of my other, I always believe in putting audacious goals ahead of you. So one of my, my goals was to help a million people. And, and, uh, I felt that, you know, until that time in my life, I probably had helped a couple hundred thousand because I'd started a lot of companies. Some of them have grown, you know, to be uh, quite large institutions and, you know, took companies public and all that kind of fun stuff. And he says, well, why don't you come in and help, you know, why don't you get that goal and help 11 million people uh, of Ohio and, uh, so anyway, so a long story short, I was I took six months. Um, it was just going to be a sabbatical from Sequoia, and come here and help them and and create what is now known as Jobs Ohio. A couple things to happen that I didn't expect. One is I really enjoyed living in Columbus. I had never spent. I, I think I'd probably prior to coming here in January of 2011. If I was here more than three days, that was kind of like it. I'd come in, fly in, see him for a meeting or something. He usually wanted to go to California. So most of our time was spent in California or in, in other places. Uh, and so I, I flew in here in January 2011, and I just, I really enjoyed living here. And then second, uh, I really enjoyed the work. I came up with this crazy idea to help fund Jobs Ohio of uh, of basically buying the liquor business. You know, um, uh, Ohio is a control state, and the state of Ohio owned the liquor business. And I wanted to use that as a, as an income flow to help uh, fund entrepreneurship and uh, and help you know find jobs and things like that. And uh, we got that through. And but then I will say, two years of state government was you know it's not a full state government deal because they're a private agency now, but you're still very government oriented. Uh, it was time for me to move on. And uh, in that process, I started seeing all these amazing startups and great technology companies, great big corporations. I had built a pretty big network of folks. And I'm going, you know, why isn't there any real venture capital here? There were some good, you know, small firms. I mean, Rich Langdale at NCT and, uh, you know, Tech Columbus, now called Rev1, you know, there were Cincy Tech. There were some small kind of $30, $40 million, $20, $30, $40 million type funds. But there wasn't a, you know, a Sequoia Capital, a, a Kleiner Perkins, uh, whatever. And so I said, you know, I started to ask that question. So uh, what you need when you're going to start a VC firm or you're going to do venture capital, you need to make sure there's world-class talent. Well, turns out um, this is a great place of talent. I mean, uh, if you actually take the region, call it a, a you know, half a day car drive from Columbus, we graduate more engineers than pretty much any place on planet earth. We include, you know, Carnegie Mellon and Pitt and o, uh, OSU and, and Michigan and Northwestern and Urbana-Champaign. You start adding all the schools, it's a lot of engineers. So one, you have a lot of engineering talent. Two is you want to be next to your customers. Turns out 150, the Fortune 500 are, are in the Midwest. And last but not least, you need access to capital. Well, there was no capital here. It was just minuscule. So 
Uh, I told Chris this idea in June of 2011. So it's about a year and a half before we started Drive. Uh, and I said, Chris, there's something going on here. Uh, I think Chris is, grew up in Cincinnati and he's also 15 plus years younger than me. And I said, you know, you're a young man. You should go out there and start this company. He says, Mark, there's no way. I spent 18 years trying to get out of Ohio. I'm never coming back, number one. And number two is you're in economic development and you're just trying to trick me. Uh, and uh, But that seed was planted and he started doing the work and I kept seeing the opportunities. And long story short, uh, that's how I got to Columbus. And uh, what's amazing is that's now uh, coming approaching uh, uh, 10 years ago. So, you know, January of 2021 will be my 10 year anniversary of being here in Columbus. Hey, everybody, we're going to take a quick break here to talk about one of our sponsors, One Columbus. You know, it really couldn't be cooler to have a sponsor and a partner like One Columbus. They are directly in alignment with everything we stand for and everything we're looking to promote here at Conquering Columbus. I mean, they just want to bring the most competitive companies to the area and make everything about the city and the region just one of the greatest places to live in the United States and in the world for that matter. Yeah, they're like the ultimate Columbus hype man. They're trying to bring new businesses here, show them what our strengths are, but also address some of the weaknesses and say, like, this is how we could get better. So for us, we're excited to help promote their goal and help tell the story with them on board. Absolutely. And uh, if you guys want to learn more about One Columbus, check them out at columbusregion.com. That's columbusregion.com. So you talk about being uh, 21, writing down your goals. And obviously it sounds like you came from a successful environment, probably surrounded by a lot of successful individuals out in the area that you were. You know, did you, did you aspire to, um, I mean, obviously being a CEO of a publicly traded company was on the list, but was career success a, a main focus for you or was, was there a lot of, was there holistic things that you were chasing? Oh, no. I mean, there were, there were several uh, life goals as well. You know, wanted to have a, a family, wanted to have, uh, you know, support my kids to, uh, uh, so they could reach their passions. One thing I've told, you know, all my kids, I have seven children. Uh, I've told all my kids, I've said, uh, I don't care what you do in your in your life. Uh, just do what you're passionate about. And each one's done different things, which is really fun. Uh, it included, um, you, know, you know, social goals, if you will, help a million people, uh, things like that. And then it had the um, the, the thing is, I, you know, the funny part is when I wrote that goal, I was in, so at that time, this is pre-Apple being public. Okay. So, you know, um, I was in one building, Jobs and Markula were in another building. We had like six buildings at the time. And the building I was in was in Banley 3. So I'm writing down this goal. I want to be a CEO of a public company. The ironic part about it is uh, uh, when my company went public in 1995, Apple was downsizing. So we actually took over a whole bunch of the Apple buildings. And it's actually, I was a C, I walked in the door of the very company I wrote the goal in. I walked in that door as a CEO of a public company. So, you know, there's some, you know, karma, the universe, whatever you want to call it, uh, had something in store. And I was, it was pretty crazy. I mean, Goldman Sachs was our banker uh, and it was a very successful IPO. I was 34 years old and you know, it, uh, it was, it was a pretty, uh, pretty heady time, but you know, so the, the whole point of all that is, is, you know, I, I'm, I'm a big believer in, you know, if you're going to set a goal, you know, make sure it's a, you know, uh, in, in the Silicon Valley, we call it a big, a, a BHAG, a, you know, big, hairy ass, audacious goal. Right. And so, um, you know, go try to push yourself. And I think that's the culture of Silicon Valley, which is a really special culture. I remember when my dad, in 1967, uh, I was six, took me out of this empty orchard field. Because basically Silicon Valley was just orchards. It was farms. 
Uh, and he says, you know, I'm going to go build my next great company here. And I go, wow, that's kind of cool. And so that, that's kind of in the water there. So did you take that same approach and, and continue to follow your passions through? Or like, you know, a lot of people, they, they chase really hard for success and they'll put themselves in positions where they're, they're not necessarily passionate, but you, you hear these, you know, you just have to grind and suffer for a while to get there. Were you passionate along the whole way or, or did you, you know, take routes that you knew were going to be difficult? Absolutely. I mean, I, I, I don't think I've ever worked a day in my life because I've loved everything I've done. I know there's some jobs I've done that I haven't liked as much as others, but I've loved everything that I've done. And I just was fortunate enough that economic and other, you know, things came along with it. I mean, it was interesting. I was at my, you know how old I am now. It was my 40th high school reunion last summer uh, in 2019. And we had 565 kids in our class in the heart of Silicon Valley. This is in Saratoga, California, heart of Silicon Valley. And about 150 of the kids were there. And, or now, you know, they're all old farts like me. And I was talking to a friend of mine who, who, his name was Kevin Landis. And we started talking about, we started looking around all our classmates. And we were really the only two guys that took advantage of being in Silicon Valley in 1979. I mean, and that's when it, it took off in the 80s and the 90s. I mean, quite frankly, there was no better place on planet Earth to be. And so... I was fortunate that my my father came from that, um, and so I saw I saw that. I mean, my brothers, my dad's kind of a uh, he's a world class engineer and an amazing marketer and sales guy. So my brothers took the engineering part, I took the marketing and sales part, uh, and uh, I, I learned a lot from him and and really f- got a, a better understanding of how to do all this stuff. So. Um, you know, there was something in the water there, but obviously not everyone drank the water, I guess. What was it like being in tech in the beginning of the internet? I remember being younger and seeing it and I was still too young to, to capitalize on it. I had a guy, one of my first companies I was involved with that was a little bit older than me and he started domain pirating. Yeah. Uh, when he was like, uh, you know, he's probably like 15 when I was like 10 kind of if thing. If I told you the domains that I owned personally, it would blow your mind. I, ne- I never got that concept. I should have done that a long time ago. Super illegal now, but yeah. he was telling me the stuff that he, the companies that he would wax for the money. He bought an M3 when we were like, you know, 17 off of one of them or when he was 17. Well, that actually reminds me like Marketo recently had like a huge issue where they forgot to renew their website and one of their oh, customers really? bought the domain and then just gave it back to them. Your boys in the Padres did that with their social handle. Yeah. They, they changed it and then had to get it back. But I guess, what was it like? Were, do you think that uh, you, I mean, obviously you've been successful, but did you see that for what it was and capitalize early? Or was it kind of like a ride the wave and kind of tie your, your horse to somebody who did? No, I, I, I think I did see a little bit of that one. What, mm-hmm. what, um, so what happened to me was even before, I saw the internet before you know, Andreessen invis, invent, you know, invented uh, Mosaic, which mm-hmm. then became Netscape. So in, 19, uh, uh, in 1992, well, we, were, we, were, we did everything for Steve Jobs. My partner was CKS. I was the Kwame. I was the K. Uh, my partner, Tom Suter, was Steve's um, chief creative officer for everything. And so when Steve left Apple, he went to go start Next. He brought us in to, um, 
to do the all the marketing and all the uh, everything for him. And uh, and so I'll never forget sitting down on my and Steve forced me to get a next terminal. So I'm sitting on the next terminal. He says, Mark, I'm going to set up your email for you. So Steve Jobs set up my first internet email that's pretty, for me. That's pretty rad. That was pretty cool. And so I had to register my domain, you know, cks.com. And uh, he and I would send emails back and forth. That was 1992. Okay. You got to remember also, this is the beginning. AOL was coming out, CompuServe was out, things like that. And so we were playing around with a lot of these online services. We actually helped uh, launch, um, what they call it, Apple eWorld, Apple E, I forget what they call it, but it was basically, it was, it was based on, excuse me, it was based on uh, AOL. And, uh, uh, and anyway, so that, so we were playing with all that stuff. The thing, when the browser came out, 1994, we had an interactive division. We called it CKS Interactive, and we were doing all this stuff for folks. Mainly, it was CD-ROM stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a guy goes, "You got to check this browser out." So I get a a, a browser, um, and I I go um, surf the net. In 1994, the only things that were really on the net were uh, universities universities and research institutions. So I had previously lived in Norway. So I studied at the University of Blindarn in, in, in Oslo. And so I go, Oslo University, boom, I'm, all of a sudden I'm seeing all my Norwegian teachers. I'm seeing all this stuff, right? Then I studied at the Sorbonne in Paris and I go, whoa, now I'm in Paris. And, and it's just like this big old light bulb goes off. I go, this is going to change everything. And it was with that as we really doubled down on that. So, you know, um, Mike Moritz, who's one of the founder, if uh, well, not founder, one of the early guys at, at Sequoia, uh, saw it early on as well. And he met these two guys, Jerry Yang and David Philo, uh, who had friends were sending them all their different sites. And they said, well, we should probably organize all those different sites. And of course, that became Yahoo. Well, Dave, I'll never forget, I'm at CKS. I'm in my, when a conference was much smaller, half the size. Okay, so maybe six people could sit in it. Well, the entire company of Yahoo and me were in that conference room. It was David Philo, Jerry Yang, and then their person who did their ontology. And I designed the website. Okay. And this is where David Philo was very smart. David said, you can put anything you want. So you guys are kind of in the design world. You know this. He says, you can put anything you want on the webpage. It can't be larger than 2K. Because, you know, we're all on modem, uh, Mm dial-up modem. So it had to go. You know, he knew speed was was very very important, and that's that's really what uh, you know made Yahoo go off. So, you know, I saw all of that stuff. I mean, you know, from the very very, you know, we launched, uh, like I said, you know, we helped launch Amazon, we helped launch uh, MCI, we helped launch all the Apple stuff, the next stuff we did. I mean, I so I got to see all of that stuff at the ground floor, which was kind of fun. So that yeah, one that's, though, that's awesome. that, that one I would say that one I. You know, I, I've missed a lot of stuff. I can tell you all the stupid things I've done, but that's one I actually saw. Yeah, I think looking looking back at that as someone who was just too young, I was born in late '85, so I came up like it was like there. I remember being on dial-up as a kid, yeah, understanding, yeah, for yeah. sure, understanding the value of it, but never being enough to to you know make. I mean, obviously, I found other ways e-commerce stuff like that, but I've just I've always envied that. And I mean, there's always something too in every generation, but I feel like that was one of the big like 
cultural defining differences. Like, you know, there's the TikTok seeing that earlier, or like seeing, you know, crypto earlier, whatever, you know, the blockchain, that, that stuff is early, but it's, I don't think any of it is monumental as connecting people who like literally could not communicate. You know, there's the, there's the cell phone and then there was the internet just like that. Yeah. I mean, in those days we had Apple mail and that mm-hmm. was all internal kind of email system and the telex. When I worked, when I started at Apple France, this is before there was email. So in Apple France, we communicated with the head office over telex. Telex, by the way, was invented in 1840 something. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I mean, this is just, I mean, it, it's kind of interesting when you actually think about it, how quickly and how far we've come in a very short period of time. Yeah, it's impressive. Well, that's, I, so that's something I think about from time to time and it's accelerating, right? The pace of growth is accelerating. So what are my future children going to grow up with, right? And what is their, we don't even know what their life's going to look like. Whereas- you know, there will be autonomous welding robots everywhere. Don't make them too smart because they might take over. Yeah. If you, you know, that artificial intelligence, I guess it depends on whether or not they, someone comes up with an artificial They'll be cool like Johnny Five. Though. We're going to take a quick break here to thank one of our sponsors, the Burlett Family Foundation. The Burlett Family Foundation is committed to serving as a trusted partner and resource to organizations striving to improve our community here in Columbus. All right, let's get back to the episode. So I want to kind of talk about something I was reading on the website, which is I was kind of going through everybody's bios and just looking at it. And I saw Chris Olson's bio and he mentions that the day he was supposed to move out here, you guys got a call from the one of the main investors that said, hey, we're pulling out. What are you thinking in that moment? And I mean, you're so you're here already in that moment, right? Oh, yeah. No, I'm I'm here. Uh, that was in uh, late. No, that was actually uh, right before our first close. I was like, I want to say that's like April 2013. So what are, what, are, what are you thinking? And, you know, is that thinking big deal? Or are you thinking, ah, we'll get someone else? Like, how, what's going through Oh, no, it, 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 it was a big deal. But at the same time, we were so convinced this was the right thing to do uh, that we were going to do it no matter what. In fact, I believe, the, our, well, the, our first two investments kind of happened on our balance sheet. So cross-checks, now all of uh, we, we wrote the check ourselves for the first investment. Uh, same thing with road trippers who we ended up selling to Thor down in Cincinnati. And so when that happened, we were already invested and then it kind of blew up on us and we were able to, you know, catch it afterwards. But I, I think the whole thing about that is I've believed from the very early, you know, actually early days of CKS, you have to have a high tolerance for ambiguity and a high tolerance for change because you never know what's going to be thrown at you. I mean, the world changes constantly. Everything that can happen will happen. Uh, and that's something that's really, you know, I think every entrepreneur needs to understand, you know, this is never up in the right. I mean, we've had our crazy stuff at, uh, I mean, one of our largest investments that we made, actually our largest investment we made in the first fund went to zero. I mean, we just like flushed down the toilet tens of millions of dollars. So things happen, you know, but you got to be, you got to be prepared and make sure. I've always said to people, you have to take the risk. If you're going to take risk, make sure there's reward. Make sure the reward is equal to the risk you are taking. So if you're taking a massive risk, if it works, you better have a massive return. Okay. And then second is don't take, what's nice about venture capital is it's a portfolio approach. Never take so much risk that if that if that thing tanks, you get you know kind of physically hurt or in bankruptcy or that or that sort of thing. You, you got to be careful on how you do these. It's like sports betting. Well, you take your total poker. bankroll right, and then yeah. you, and you bet in units based on the 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 probability of return. Exactly, I understand that for sure. 
have you ever been scared of losing it all? Have you ever thought, you know, I mean, taking a risk so big that you thought, you know, if I wake up tomorrow, I'm not going to have anything. Has that been a fear or has it just been, you all make it no matter what? No, it's not been, a, but I've never thought of it as mine anyway. I've never been attached. Like I said, I, I, I do this no matter what I, I, I do it. I mean, it's like people, everyone, when I came here to Ohio and, you know, the deal was I got paid a buck a year and everyone thought that I was nuts. By the way, even when you get paid a dollar, they take taxes out. My actual check was 91 cents, but I did that for different reasons. Right. Um, and so I've just been very fortunate to do what I'm passionate about and I do it anyway, even if I didn't make any money. I just, I love being around entrepreneurs. I love that process of invention. I, I, I just, you know, I, I've told the story a thousand times here, but when I was 16, someone asked me what I wanted to be when I grew up and I said an entrepreneur because I didn't know how to pronounce the word. Uh, so that, that's just kind of in me. So talking about those entrepreneurs or entrepreneurs and, and talking about the businesses you've invested in, you know, what, what, are, what have you noticed that makes the most successful ones? Is it that you guys have sat down and you've identified trends ahead of time or have you mainly made your bets on people? Like you hear some VC companies say, where do you guys feel like you put put the most weight when you make investments? So, I mean, there's basically three places that VCs find themselves. These are one in the people, as you mentioned. Two is in the tech, you know, it's the specific piece of technology. Or third is the market opportunity. At Sequoia and now at Drive, we are market-based investors. And so what we're looking for is very, very large markets, okay? And then we're looking for entrepreneurs that are scratching their own itch. You know, there are very, very, very few. There's the odd one, okay? That come up with this idea out of the blue and have no background in it whatsoever and make a big success of it. But that's very, very rare. It's like, you know, Jerry and, I mentioned Jerry Yang and David Filo. They were just putting the websites together because it worked for them, you know, uh, and so on. So you you really want to find that entrepreneur. I mean, you, you mentioned Root. Um, you know, Alex Tim has been doing insurance since he was eight years old. You know, his dad worked in the insurance business. He's been, you know, underwriting and understanding actuarial risks since he was like, you know, a single digit. So I think that uh, that's the kinds of folks you're looking for. And I've always felt that the best entrepreneurs and that build the biggest opportunities, like, you know, Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak at Apple, they had no clue they were going to build a company. They just wanted to build a computer for themselves. It turns out a whole bunch of other people wanted it. So, the way I look at it from an investment perspective is I want to work with an entrepreneur that is scratching their own itch and just has to do this for themselves for no other reason. They have to do this. And then secondarily, they have to do this. And what they have to do is a very large market. If you combine those two, you can have outsized uh, venture capital returns. I, somebody told me, I don't even remember who told me that, but the scratch your own itch, like when I was very, very young and that, that hearing you say that just, that, that was like the thing that stuck with me the most. Um, it's like how many people are itching to, you know, is it, it was do the thing that you need and then find out the people that also have that itch. My partner always had the itches that were only him. Right. And I understood everybody else's itches, even if I didn't have them. So I think that combination, but yeah, that, that feels so good to hear someone say that from, from VC because people, I feel like you can have, like if you, you can identify a market and make a, a poor product because there's a market or you can identify a need that makes a great product and then try to find a market. And there's those two back and forth in the sweet spots, like right in the middle. Well, and it's a good point because I like as a sales leader here at FMX, I'm constantly watching for new competitors popping up. Mm -hmm. And we had a competitor who I won't name, but there's a new one that popped up and they're just tech people, right? They're not involved in the space at all. They just started a company to start a company. And I'm like, exactly. I'm not worried about those guys at all. Mm -hmm. 
they're not a threat because they're not going to understand at a fundamental level the problem they're facing and trying to solve. So it makes a lot of sense. Looking at the portfolio companies though within the Drive Capital brand though, there is something that I noticed and that's branding. Every single portfolio company has a very strong brand and presence. Uh, and it seems like that's something that's a big focus for Drive Capital companies. Is that driven from Drive or is, is it that you guys see a company and branding as a part of kind of what you're looking for when you're investing? Well, no, I mean, I think we want people the point of view. We want people that are planting a flag and, and saying, no, this is the way it should be. And then that kind of emanates across everything else that they're doing. And so starting a company and building a company is really, really hard. And, you know, uh, hiring people and, and doing all that's super, super hard. So you've got to kind of plant your flag. The way I look at the logo, the brand, whatever you want to call it is, hey, you're going to join this country. You're going to join this flag. You're going to join this team. You know, it's like your OSU uh, shirt you got there. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm joining your bills. I mean, look at the, you guys. you got Path Robotics, the <laughs> Buffalo Bills, and the Ohio State shirts on. Got a that's, lot of flags. That's what's going on, right? And so that's what people are joining. So I think that's why that's very, very important. So what does your day-to-day look like now? Like, what are your primary focuses with Drive and, and maybe outside responsibilities that you're focused on a regular basis? Well, I mean, basically, I'm, I'm one of the investors uh, at Drive. And what we do is we sit down and the way we were taught to invest at Sequoia and we continue to do at Drive is, like, like I mentioned, pick things that you're interested in, markets that you're interested in. And then what we do is we build what we call our market maps. And, um, and then you kind of understand where, where you think, you know, there's a lot of opportunity. I mean, you use path as an example. So I had built a market map around, um, autonomous vision and really kind of understanding AI around the senses, you know, touch, feel, hearing, so on and so forth. So we made the investment in a company called Algalux, which is an AI vision company. We made an investment in a company called Clink, which is a conversational AI company. And then our partner, Nick, was working in the robotics world. And uh, he came up, you know, the, the brothers there uh, at Path. And uh, he said, you know, I, these guys are onto something here. And, I, and then he, I happened to be a certified welder. And so I said to Nick, if they can solve that problem, that is a massive market because there's a huge shortage of welders and so on and so forth. So the way you look at that, it's a combination of two things. So it's his interest in robotics, building a market map of robotics. And we've made several robotics investments. Several of them are here in Columbus, like you know, Ready, Ready. Robotics and, and others. And then on the flip side, it's the partner's interests in other market maps as well. In my case, you know, computer vision and AI around uh, sensing your three-dimensional space is kind of what I was playing around with. And so you combine those things and you go, oh my gosh, we got to become investors. And that that's kind of how, that's a big part of our job. So the way I, I look at my job at Drive is kind of in three areas and, you know, depending on the week, the day, the month, it could be different percentages of, but really one is kind of looking for new stuff. I know what we don't want to do is we want, we're not momentum investors, you know, we're not, Hey, cause imagine if you're sitting in our shoes and we're, I guess the largest VC here in, in the Midwest, there's a lot of people building a lot of companies. If one person comes in with a, you know, a cat walking service and the next person comes in with a XYZ service and an XYZ tech, I have to learn all of those things. I'm not going to learn all this. So what we do is we focus on areas that we have interest, like robotics and finding path, for example. So that's a that's a percentage of my of my job. The second part of my job is is helping the companies that I'm on the boards of. 
and they're all at different stages. Usually the earlier company, it's really hard to be on more than two early stage boards. So these are the guys that, you know, you know, that are guys and gals that are just starting out, you know, they're building their teams. It's kind of, you know, three person, three people on a dog. And then you're trying to take it from three to 30 uh, and, you know, get your first customers. That That's a lot of work. And so you can't do more than two. And then you kind of have other folks who are kind of in that, I guess the best way to look at it is the series B, series C range. Uh, and then you have some later stage companies like Chris is still on the board of Root. Root is a very big company and they're off to the races and it's not, it's not the same. It's a lot of work, but it's not the same uh, level of, of work and so on. So those, those are my, that's my second thing that I do. And then the third thing I do is, you know, with Chris, the management of drive and thinking about what, where we want drive to be. And, and when we're fundraising, you know, that's a significant percentage of my time right now, we, we closed two new funds in uh, November. So it's less, less amount of my time. Hey there, Conquerors. We want to take a quick moment to talk about one of our sponsors, Studio 301. Kyle and his team have helped us redesign our website, taking the podcast in a new direction that we truly love. And we have some incredible guests here on the show. And Studio 301 has given us a website that reflects the caliber of the people that join us. And the Studio 301 team can help you with everything from brand strategy and redesigns to market research, videography, social media overhauls, and a whole lot more. You can go check them out at studio301.org. That's studio301.org. So you dropped being a certified welder in there. It's might probably worth our time just to figure out how that uh, sprouted about <laughs> yeah. side hobby or yeah. Well, I'm uh, I'm kind of a motorhead, and uh, at that time I was racing off road dirt trucks. And off road dirt trucks is basically uh, chromoly steel tube systems, and when you're driving them around, you're crashing them a lot, and so uh, you need to be able to weld them back together again to get back on the track, and sometimes, you know, the team has too many people, and da, 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 or not, I mean, too many cars crashed, and you need some help, and so that's kind of why I did it, and so uh, I am a terrible welder. Thank goodness for PATH. Um, but I, I, you know, I just enjoyed it. I actually went to the Edison Welding Institute, their uh, EDI, is it EDI? EWI. Yeah, EAWI. And I had some connections and the head of it is a friend of mine. And he is Mark, I got the guy to teach you. So I, I got personal lessons and uh, he showed me uh, all the, you know, TIG and all kinds of fun stuff. So a stick. And so anyway, so that's, that's kind of what I, I learned how to do it. And I haven't done too much of it, but I like... I like trying new things. I like learning new areas. And that's just kind of, I think that's why I like venture capital so much because you're constantly learning about new tech, new things. So how do we set up a welding competition between you and one of the PATH robots? Uh, PATH robots will clean me, <laughs> clean me up. Uh, it could be good. It could be good for you long term. You yeah. invested in the company, yeah. so kind of yeah. throw yourself under the bus, you know? <laughs> My my bead my beads will be really terrible. So uh, you know it's be big old blobs of weld all over the place. That's one thing that's amazing about that. You know when I first saw the weld the first welds that they were doing in the, the exhaust company exhaust pipe company, I'm going, oh my gosh, that's crazy. So uh, that that's you, you, it's it's going to be amazing. I mean that's one thing as you, I think you were talking about your children and stuff. Um, I'm a I have three little kids as well. I have three older four older kids and three little kids and. Um, the thing I think about a lot in both how we teach our kids, how we, you know, what's going to be successful in the future is I think anything that is mechanical and how you do things will be done better with AI. And that, by the way, could be operating spreadsheets. I mean, there's hundreds of people working around Columbus that take, you know, do a database query, take it out of the data warehouse, throw it up into a Excel spreadsheet and do some analysis. 
all that's going to be done. You know, if you're a, you know, a legal assistant, if you're a, a junior accountant, all that stuff is going to be done better with AI. I think what we got to do is teach our kids and uh, and folks around us and reteach uh, even old people like you guys and me is how to continuously learn. And we've got to be, you know, how do we take our human creativity and understand how we continuously learn? And those sorts of professions will never go away. Um, I, the whole world, the thing I, I'm a big believer, and I've said this, I said this a couple of years ago, many years ago now, and I kind of got in some trouble about it, but um, I, I actually think my little kids won't go to college. I think this whole idea of going off and getting a degree and, you know, off I go and I learned how to be, I mean, you know, guys, I have a, I'm a tech, I'm actually an engineer. I'm a binary programmer. I programmed in assembly. I, you know, I, I that's what I did my first couple of years at, at Apple. But my degree is in French, French literature. And that did not get me too far. Okay. Yeah. It helped me go to Apple France and I could speak French and do tech support in France, but uh, it didn't help me too much. So this whole idea of coming up with a degree, I think that's all baloney. I think in the future, it's, um, I think university can be kind of like your country club in that, hey, I have a place to go learn. Uh, but I'm going to go back and go back and I'll have my, you know, my golf pro will be a professor and I'll go back and I'll go. I think that's the model of the future. You know, we're investors in a company called Udacity that's having a great deal of success that's doing a lot of that kind of stuff. So, yeah, I mean, you just pick and choose the classes that you actually need rather than, you know, the liberal arts degree that has you take two years of classes that probably don't apply to anything you're going to do in the future. Exactly. I mean, I think, I think, you know, at the end of the day, the world's changing so crazy fast. I used to make, I used to have a, a phrase that I said after three product life, people would ask me, okay, can you predict the future? And I said, well, after three product life cycles, I don't know how, where it's going to go. And a product life cycle is about 18 months, kind of Moore's law, another way of looking at it. And so, I mean, if I had told you, you know, five years ago, uh, you know, some of the things you can do today. I mean, I, this, I mean, I, I have my, my iPhone 11 here and me, th this, every time I look at this, it blows my mind. I mean, what this machine can do. I mean, the fact that it's got a, you know, eight core you know, multiprocessor, it's got, you know, 250 gigabytes of storage. It's got a high speed wire. I mean, I look at this thing and I'm, you know, you guys got to remember when I started Apple computer, I had a eight bit Apple two, Apple two wasn't even an Apple two plus. So to start it, you had to hit control shift control six, because that said that you're going to start it in slot six. And, you know, I had 144K. Uh, um, actually, my first thing was a cassette tape. It was actually a cassette tape storage. And then I got a hundred. And when I got a disc two, it was like I died and gone to heaven. And then my buddy, my cube mate got a Winchester five megabyte drive. And it literally was the width of this table. It was literally like you know four or five feet long and about three or four feet wide. And every time he turned it on, it sounded like an aircraft carrier was taking off. And I think the lights dimmed. And so you know that's two pictures now. And so the way I look at this all this stuff, right. it's just gone. It, you know where it's going to go from now. Who who the heck knows? So the welder that reads French literature and codes binary in his free time. I can't wait till we title this episode. <laughs> so Success is easy. Just do actually, all those you know, things. I, I was over when Path was in our building. I think it was one of your guys and they were doing some binary stuff. And I go, oh, this is what, you know, because I actually can still add in binary. I was teaching my seven-year-old how to add in binary the other day, which is actually a lot of fun. Uh, but uh, anyway, that's, a, that's an aside. Our sponsor is Waveform Music Group. 
Andy and Carlin have been working with us to take the production of Conquering Columbus to the next level, and Josh and I cannot be happier with the results. Outside of podcast production, Andy and Carlin are experts in songwriting, music production, and sonic branding for companies of all sizes. And to learn more about them, head to their website, createwaveforms.com. That is createwaveforms.com, and tell them Conquering Columbus sent you. So one of the final questions for me, and I, I don't want you to, because you talked a lot about passion, so I don't want you to repeat yourself, but as I hear your story, you know, it's like, um, I hear about creating companies and success and how one one event unfolded the next, and it's like, inside it makes you want to go run through a wall to get there. It's like, I want to follow, but you mentioned follow your passion, and what I try to figure out is like, how does somebody look back, and maybe this is advice for entrepreneurs, young professionals that are listening, and say, I want my career to get to that point, and there's no guarantee, but I also want to follow my passions and figure out where my strengths are. Did you have a route that you followed that allowed you to realize what your strengths are and double down on them, whether it was the sales and marketing aspects? And if you did, how did you realize that those were your strengths? Uh, I, I think um, I think the best way to do it is have mentors. I mean, have folks that tell you the truth about what... I had this great... Uh, one of my first bosses was this guy named Dave Larson, and he was um, he was head of the Apple II division. And I'm this kind of rising guy, uh, young kid. Uh, I mean, I was a worldwide, I was the international product manager for the Apple IIc, which was a big product. And I was 22, 23, right? And he just sit me down. I said, Mark, don't do that. Do this. Don't do that. I mean, and listen, you know? And so I think having a, a real mentor. Now, the other thing I'll never forget um, and I took great offense to this at the time. I was probably, my, my first true job was mowing lawns. And I loved mowing lawns because I liked doing the designs in the lawns. I was kind of like, I like all this stuff. And this one guy, I was working lawns mowing. The guy was a total jerk. And I finally called him up. I said, dude, I just can't work for you anymore. And he goes, oh, you wet behind the ear. And I thought to myself, I want to be fired on my feet, not on my knees. And so just do what you believe in. And it will work out at the end of the day. So the way I look at it is, you know, you want to do what you're passionate about, do what you believe in. Uh, hey, we got to feed our families and, you know, hey, we got to have it, you know, a, a roof over our head and things like that. But, but you know, there's a lot of different ways to accomplish that. And, and you know, life is just so crazy short. Uh, guys, I mean, I look at you guys, I know you guys are in your twenties, I guess. Um, you know, I, that was yesterday for me. I'm 59. I turned 60 in February and I don't feel inside any different than I did when I was 18. So, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it goes very quickly. You're not going to look back and say, oh, I didn't make this buck or I didn't get this job title or I didn't, you're going to look back and say, I wish I had done what I really wanted to do. Well, Mark, it's a great place to pivot to our last question of the show, and uh, that's centered around the theme here on Conquering Columbus. And for that, we chose live uncomfortably. And without telling you too much about why we chose that particular phrase, what do you think of when you hear it? How does it apply to your life and career? Well, you should probably go to the the internets and go to YouTube. Uh, I did a TEDx talk on the importance of scaring yourself. We as human beings, if you think about it, it's only been about 200 years that we've lived comfortably, uh, where we weren't being worried about being eaten by someone or our village being raided or this, that, and the other thing, right? I mean, just think about it. It hasn't been that long that we, you know, we kind of live very, you know, again, there's parts of the world and parts of the country and things like that. It's difficult, but by and large, we live pretty comfortably. So I, I, 
really believe in scaring myself. Uh, and because I need to be, you need to be uncomfortable, in my opinion, to accomplish big things. Because the minute you get comfortable, you get lethargic and you don't do what you should should go do. So I, mean, I still ride motocross. I just, I, mean, I was riding motocross this weekend, jumped my motorcycle hundred feet. You know, I mean, that's what I do. 30 feet in the air. I mean, I was doing new jumps. I mean, I, I'm almost 60. I'm, I'm trying to accomplish some new stuff on a motorcycle. And I had a huge crash in April and, you know, it's actually still hurts to sit down. Uh, but Hey, you know, that's the price for, you know, pushing yourself. Well, Mark, thanks so much for joining us. It's been a uh, great time getting to know your story and, and we really appreciate you sharing it with our listeners. You're very welcome. You guys are doing great stuff. So let's uh, let's all of us go conquer Columbus. Let's, let's do it. go. Let's do it. And uh, everybody, thanks for tuning in. We'll talk to you guys next week. Oh.